Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 192, A People's Guide to Greater Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. In just a few minutes, I'm going to be joined by two of the three authors of a new book that's launching this week called A People's Guide to Greater Boston. As the title implies, it's a guidebook, similar to Lonely Planet or Fodor's. But instead of giving an overview of the Freedom Trail and introducing readers to the hot restaurants and hotels of Boston, this guidebook uncovers the forgotten stories of radicals and activists hidden away in every neighborhood and suburb. For the listeners who complain that our normal episodes are too political, or our point of view is too liberal, well, sorry in advance, I guess. This guide definitely doesn't keep politics out of history, and its authors are starting from a point well to my left. But before we meet Joe Nevins and Sarin Mudliar, it's time for this week's upcoming historical event. For my upcoming event this week, I'm featuring a talk by Dr. Richard Bell of the University of Maryland, hosted by the Boston Athenaeum. By now, listeners probably know that I'm a big Hamilton nerd. I've seen the musical twice, and the soundtrack's in pretty heavy rotation in my earbuds. If you listen to our episode 62, about a peculiar duel between Bostonians, you've heard us badly violate Lin-Manuel's copyrights as well. Landing just in time for the Hamilton movie's debut on Disney+, this week's virtual event is titled, Hamilton, How the Musical Remixes American History. Here's how the Athenaeum describes it. Even in lockdown, America has Hamilton mania. With Disney Plus streaming the show this July, everyone's talking about Lin-Manuel Miranda's Tony-winning musical. Its crafty lyrics, hip-hop tunes, and big, bold story have even rejuvenated interest in the real lives and true histories that Hamilton the Musical puts center stage. In this talk, University of Maryland historian Dr. Richard Bell will explore this musical phenomenon to reveal what its success tells us about the marriage of history and show business. We'll learn what this amazing musical gets right and gets wrong about Alexander Hamilton, the American Revolution, and the birth of the United States, and about why all that matters. We'll examine some of the choices Hamilton's creators made to simplify, dramatize, and humanize the complicated events and stories on which the show is based. We'll also talk about Hamilton's cultural impact. What does its runaway success reveal about the stories we tell each other about who we are and the nation we made. This Thursday, July 9th, you can tune into the talk at 6 p.m. The event's free, but you need to register in advance to get the connection details. We'll have a link in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 192. Before I introduce my guests, I'd like to pause and thank our Patreon sponsors. These are the folks who sign up to give us $2, $5, or even $10 a month to help support the show. Along with offsetting the day-to-day expenses of podcasting, our Patreon supporters have helped us make some welcome improvements. Early on, we were able to upgrade our microphones. And over the past year or so, we've upgraded our media hosting in order to get into Spotify, added transcripts for deaf or hard-of-hearing Boston history nerds, subscribe to the Boston Globe archives for nearly 150 years of research material, and gotten expanded access to JSTOR for scholarly papers. All of that, 
is due to your support, and we hope to keep making improvements going forward. Thanks to everyone who already supports the show. If you're not already a sponsor and you'd like to be, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And thanks again. And now it's time for this week's main topic. A People's Guide to Greater Boston was written by Joseph Nevins, Seren Mudliar, and Eleni McCrackus. Joe, now a professor of geography at Vassar College, was born and raised in Dorchester. He's the author of past books on violence in East Timor, U.S. immigration in the apartheid era, and the recent remaking of the U.S.-Mexico boundary. Seren Mudliar grew up in South Africa and now lives in Chelsea. He's the coordinator of the movement-building space in Cuentro Cinco. He's also the editor of the journal Socialism and Democracy and a past collaborator with Noam Chomsky. Eleni McCrackis grew up in Cambridge and now works on affordable housing development in Greater Boston. Their new book is A Radical's Guide to Boston and the Surrounding Suburbs. It's organized first geographically, then topically. It has sections covering Boston's urban core, the neighborhoods, adjoining towns like Cambridge and Chelsea, and then the North Shore, South Shore, and Metro West. In each section, the authors unearth a wide range of sites, and in some cases, former sites, that are tied to black, indigenous, labor, or other radical historic events. After the sections grouped by geography, there are a half-dozen thematic tours, tying together sites from around the region that are all related to a single historic topic. These include Native Boston, Malcolm and Martin, Sacco and Vanzetti, Bread and Roses, The 1%, and a nature tour. Joe and Seren are joining me now to talk about A People's Guide to Greater Boston. Joe and Seren, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. The book is A People's Guide to Greater Boston. And I guess my first question about it is, who do you envision this book being for? Is it written for an audience of native Bostonians, for first-time visitors, or for somebody else, somebody somewhere in between? You know, when you write a book uh, with the title that contains the word "A People's Guide," um, you, you know, I think at some moments you are uh, you entertain the fantasy that it's speaking to absolutely everyone. Uh, you know, anyone who would want to define themselves as part of the people. Uh, however, in in the sort of uh, early stages of the book, I think we decided we wanted to reach people who are making social change or mm. interested in social change or connected to or feel sympathy with people who desire social change and changing the relations between uh, the powerful and those uh, 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 afflicted by power. And so I think that, you know, that sort of is a large category that speaks to who we'd like to reach. So it does mean reaching students on campuses, workers in unions or non-union workers and a wide range of other people, although we do, I think, assume a fair amount of education on behalf of the reader. I guess the title is a little bit of a, a dead giveaway by sort of the nod to Howard Zinn and the People's History of the United States. It gives folks a an idea of what the the point of view is. So, because it's a guidebook, it is arranged a little bit differently than a typical, I guess, a narrative history book. Uh, can one of you 
tell us a little bit about how the book's structured? Well, the book is very historical, right? It covers mm-hmm. about 400 years. The way it's organized is more geographical. So the book is both a guidebook of sorts, mm-hmm. and it's also a historical geography. And when we say it's geographical, it's it's organized on the basis of places, right? So the book opens in the historic core of the city of Boston, and then moves out into the neighborhoods, and then moves to uh, municipalities in and around the city of Boston proper. So we go from places like Cambridge and Somerville, right? Mm-hmm. Places that one normally thinks of as part of Greater Boston, but then places that are farther afield, places like Lawrence and Lynn and Lowell, and Salem, mm-hmm. Plymouth and Concord. And partly what we're trying to do is to help to shed light on uh, parts of Greater Boston that are typically neglected when one thinks about Boston's historical geography, and at the same time to highlight the fact that while there are boundaries between these different municipalities and these different different neighborhoods and sections of the of the you know, greater urban area, there are also a lot of connections, mm-hmm. right? and those connections are formulated and struggled over in all sorts of ways. And those uh, formulations and struggles are central to uh, what we're trying to bring to light through this book. The book ranges, spends a lot of time, as you say, on the the historic core and the neighborhoods of Boston, but it ranges from Haverhill to Brockton, out to Concord. When did, I guess, how did you decide where to draw the line in terms of what counted as Greater Boston for the purposes of the book? Well, that, uh, let me just say that wasn't an easy process. Right? Part of the struggle in writing any book, and certainly mm-hmm. this book, is trying to figure out what to include. And equally important, and that's in, a, in, a, in an effort to produce a book like this, is to figure out what not to include. And so one of the que- one of the discussions that we had um, a number of times is how do we define Greater Boston? And where we ultimately decided is we were going to define it by largely through the MBTA, hmm. right? But then, you know, that, that can take you pretty far, right? Especially in terms of right. the meter rail. It can take right. you to places like Worcester and things like that. We didn't, we didn't go that far, right? Um, we, you know, we, we tended to places that were relatively easily accessible from the city of Boston through public transportation, right? But, you know, some of the places like Plymouth are, are not so easy to, to reach. Right. But so ultimately, you know, what, you know, in, in deciding to include a place like Plymouth, it emerged out of our recognition, if you will, that to not include Plymouth, given its importance in, in terms of colonial and indigenous historical geographies, uh, would just leave a sort of a gaping hole in the, the story that we're trying to tell. At the same time, and we're very explicit about this in the book, what we're not trying to do in this book is to be comprehensive. Mm-hmm. Right, we're trying to be suggestive. A geographical story is, a, is in some way it doesn't lend itself to the neatness that a historical narrative does. And so, in picking and choosing what to le- what, what to include, we, we left holes mm-hmm. in the story, and we see this not at the as the end of a conversation, but as one intervention in an ongoing dialogue about the making of a people's greater Boston. Now, it's a question that I struggle with with the podcast. What what stories do I include in the podcast? And when we first started almost four years ago, now I would say, "Oh, well, it, that was in Cambridge. I don't, I don't know. That's not really Boston." And now I'm 
trying to convince myself whether a really fascinating sounding book about a New Bedford whaler, trying to decide, well, is New Bedford Boston enough? So my, my circle has gotten ever bigger over the past few years of doing this podcast. That was really a challenge for us, too, um, thinking specifically about places like Fall River, New Bedford, mm -hmm. given the history people like uh, in the Underground Railroad, in right, um, right. in Frederick Douglass's life and all. And ultimately, we decided most people just didn't think of New Bedford as part of Boston. And, and so mm -hmm. that was difficult. Another sort of entry point into this was to, to look at the sort of life of people who we were writing about uh, and when we thought of people like Sacco and Vanzetti, for example, they lived all over, you know, the, the map of what we'd call Greater Boston and mm -hmm. beyond that too. And they got around, you know, literally in, on the same day to these different parts of the city in, 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 in addition to living in these different areas. And so there is a, a functional Greater Boston in a sense. And I think that we, we, we certainly don't cover it comprehensively, as Joe pointed out, but, uh, but we do have a sense of what's in it. And, uh, and I think that the different cities we've chosen, uh, sort of capture the, um, the circumference of that area. Now, coming back to a comment that Joe made about Plymouth and the importance of in including Plymouth in part because of its centrality and in indigenous history of, of the Boston area. I guess it's it's no accident that the introduction to the book is titled Unsettling Greater Boston. I read a double meaning into that title. What were you getting at by beginning your guidebook to Boston by talking about Boston as a product of colonization? So so certainly Jake you're correct in that we purposely purposefully wanted to communicate a double meaning. Mm. Right? We wanted to unsettle, if you will, received wisdom about what Boston was and is and how it came to be what what we know today, or I should say Greater Boston. And at the same time, we want to think of the process of colonization, right? And uh, if you look at the word, the root of the word colonization, the etymology of the term, right, it's about settlement. Mm -hmm. right? And we want to think about that process of settlement, particularly European settlement, and how that, um, you know, the work that that did and the work that that built upon, right? And particularly uh, the presence of non-European peoples, specifically, you know, the indigenous or native population. At the same time, in thinking about Boston as a colonial enterprise, um, we want to think about it both as a site that was and is colonized, you know, in a broad sense, but also a place that participated in and continues in a broader colonial project, right? That has both national and global dimensions. So when we think about, for example, uh, the U.S. Uh, conquest of Hawaii, or we think of the U.S. annexation of what's today the U.S. Southwest through the uh, U.S.-Mexican War of 1846 to 1848, by which the U.S. took about what was at least nominally then half of, almost half of Mexican territory. Mm -hmm. um, if we think about um, the War of 1898, the Spanish-American War, and the, the taking of the Philippines and Cuba, right? Uh, affluent and influential Greater Bostonians played central roles in this, and still today, you know, Boston's a city that's known as a place with a significant peace and anti-militarism movement. But Boston is also central to the military-industrial complex, 
right? And if we think about, for example, the war in Yemen that continues to unfold, mm-hmm. Raytheon Corporation in Waltham is a central player in that, right? And so we want to bring together these different strands, if you will, of the colonial project, both Boston, Greater Boston as a place of settlement and a place in Greater Boston and the institutions and individuals associated with it as a place that produces a larger colonial project. And of course, at the same time, a place in which this colonial project, you know, in its different facets is challenged um, in very important ways over time. It's funny you mentioned the settlement of, or the annexation of Hawaii. I was on Maui a few years back and there just seemed to be a congregational church on every corner. And of course, that's the missionary movement that was based out of Park Street Church. But I, I wasn't really aware of that at the time until I came back and said, why are all these congregational churches everywhere on Maui? It doesn't make any sense. Well, you know, if you go to uh, the Green Street tea station, within about a five or 10 minute walk from that station, you'll come to the um, stately home of the Dole family. Oh, and, um, yes, one of the, and they were a unit, I think the, the father of the family was a very, uh, progressive, uh, Unitarian Universalist minister. Uh, his son went off to Harvard and I think he might have studied like plant botany, you know, botany or something like that and, um, helped create the plantation agricultural system in Hawaii that gave its name to the, the Dole Corporation that we now know. The introduction to the book, as you say, it, it focuses on the colonial project, uh, especially during the settlement period of Boston. And then you transition from that into the first few sites in your section on Boston's urban core. And either the first or one of the first stops on your tour of Boston is Deer Island. And for most people today, Deer Island is known as the site of the massive Waste digesters, the sewage digesters are visible from around the harbor, from the Blue Hills, from any place where you can get a vantage on the harbor. But back in the 17th century, that same site was basically an internment camp for the praying Indians. So, we give us a little background on why we call them praying Indians and how the, the camps there came to be. The camps on Deer Island are extremely interesting for precisely the group of people you're talking about, the praying Indians. And and they represent an interesting category of people, as it were, because they were a group of people who essentially collaborated with Indi- with the settlers and adopted Christianity and adopted many of its practices and lived in very defined settlements. Uh, and we, in our book, we have several of them, the Wamasset a settlement in Lowell, Nonantum in uh, Brighton, mm-hmm. and, um, and we mentioned Natick as well. And... Uh, as a group of people who collaborated, it seems like they occupied a uh, an ambiguous uh, relationship both with respect to the settlers and to other indigenous people, people who refused to collaborate. At the same time, uh, you know, just want to emphasize this word ambiguity because till today, there's no real settled um, perspective on whether 
these were people who uh, had genuinely given up their indigenous beliefs, or if they had, uh, you know, in a very calculating way, decided to collaborate in order that they could stay on their land or stay on land close to where they once had lived. Um, in the case of Nonantum, um, these were people who were uh, who worked with uh, John Elliot, after whom John Elliot Square is named, and they converted to Christianity and were then uh, uh, settled in 1646 in the area known as Nonantum. And within five years, they were moved off that land that they had been allocated further out of Boston to Natick. And so one of the stories we tell is of people... Uh, marking uh, this movement by paddling downriver from Natick or on the Charles all the way through to uh, to the bay and uh, and to ultimately land at Deer Island during King Philip's war the uh, praying indians were seen as a hostile party and removed from their lands transferred from their lands much as say uh, you know israeli settlers desire to transfer palestinians from their lands today and and so uh, they were interred on the islands in the 16 se- in 1675 in the course of the what is called, today called King Philip's War mm-hmm. and uh, subject to deportation from there. They were also left, um, you know, we say an internment camp, but it was also a place where they were effectively starved uh, while on the island in in winter. And so it it has a very ugly history that perpetuated itself long after uh, that layer of people was were, were vanquished. So uh, after that, um, it was a place where people were interred uh, in the late 1800s, at least, um, in an in an attempt to uh, isolate people uh, who were suspected of having smallpox. The island was used uh, for that purpose as well as a quarantine area. It, uh, Irish people were quarantined there in the 1840s, and then in the 1920s, socialists were interred there before being deported. So that history continues. Um, I'll just give you a, a very different perspective on Deer Island from what we even have in the book and tell you my own perspective on it. Sure. I first learned about Deer Island for the very same reason you cited at the beginning, thinking about the large um, water treatment facility there. And... Um, the, the reason I came to, to think about it is it's a multi-billion dollar facility and it was itself a product of an urban struggle here over Boston Harbor mm-hmm. and in order that Boston Harbor be cleaned up. So it was created and when it was created, uh, a bond was taken out, um, which the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority has to service and it's serviced through user fees and the result is that water rates in Boston are relatively high compared to the rest of the country and that high water those high water costs result in racial inequality across the city uh, where uh, black Boston is 10 times more likely to have their water shut off than white Boston and so Deer Island also has that meaning for me too it's a symbol of a particular type of investment in a particular type of technology that costs the city in terms of social inequality and literally in terms of monthly bills so dear island doesn't have a happy history as far as i'm concerned no and there's a lot there that i had never thought to unpack i would have never i've never compared boston's water rates to other major cities to even realize they were high 
while we're on the topic of indigenous history, I'm going to fast forward through history and also through the book a bit. There was another a story I'd never read anywhere else before about the Odeon Theater and a speech that was given there in 1836 that, that harkened back to that settlement period and King Philip's War itself. Who was speaking then in 1836? The person speaking was William Apes, and his name might be pronounced Apes. I really haven't come across a, a single settled spelling or pronunciation of the name. Um, and his own autobiography goes, is simply his name, William Apes, and then a comma, Pequot. Uh, so he's a uh, a descendant of Pequot uh, indigenous peoples. Uh, the first uh, war that the settlers had was with the Pequot uh, Indians. Um, uh, the first war that Massachusetts Bay Colony engaged in in mm -hmm. 1636. And so William Apes was uh, certainly someone who traveled the area and developed a pan-Indian identity. So rather than an individual tribal identity, he uh, he articulated a, a sort of a broader history of indigenous people sharing a common experience. Uh, in fact, just before he came to make that speech at the Odeon Theatre, um, he had participated in the Mashpee uprising in 1833-1834, in which uh, what was then a reservation uh, rose up against their trusteeship, which was exercised through Harvard University, and sought greater autonomy. This is the same group of people who the Trump administration is currently challenging, or at least a, a part of the same nation, the Wampanoag, whom the Trump administration is challenging over their rights to territory today. What is interesting about William Apes is he, he's, uh, in developing this pan-European identity, he also saw himself as an historian, and he, he used history for political purposes in a very self-conscious way. So, his speech at the Odeon Theatre was called A Vindication of King Philip. And he, in the, the speech engages in the, in a sort of a study of, uh, European encounters with the native, with native peoples from the point of view of native peoples. But he had a very immediate practical purpose for harkening back to more than a hundred years before to King Philip's War, which was at about the same time the, um, the government of Andrew Jackson was engaged in, uh, was uh, carrying out the uh, the plans of the Indian Removal Act, and so there was a nationwide movement against uh, people being expelled um, from Florida and from what is present day Georgia, and this also speaks to his pan Indian identity. So there are many themes that come together with William Apes. Another element of this, the intersectionality of all of this, that's uh, that speech that day in, on January eighth. Uh, 1836. It was advertised in the Liberator by, um, published by William Lloyd Garrison. And so there's a great sense of overlap of struggle and an identity of struggles, you know, on the one hand with Garrison's advocating for immediate abolition of slavery and yeah, uh, you know, vindicating uh, King Philip and um, reaffirming the rights of indigenous people to their lands against a, um, a, uh, a government very much like today's. Where was the Odeon Theater? Was it in what's today Chinatown? 
No, actually, it's in a federal, or it's one federal place. So, uh, very close to Liberty Square in, uh, down in the financial district. Liberty Square would have been the site of the Liberty Tree. And then, of course, after that, the Liberty Stump, after the British cut it down. But you don't focus on the revolutionary era when you talk about Liberty Square. You talk about a celebration in 1793. Uh, so what was happening during Washington's administration? that was resulting in this big party in Liberty Square. You know, I should say this was a huge learning exercise for me. For about 10 years, my office was uh, about uh, two blocks from the site of the Liberty Tree, which was in Chinatown, right? Um, however, Liberty Square is in the financial district. Oh, okay. I'm confusing yep. the two. Yep. And I was just as confused. So that's that was the first place I went to research Liberty Square <laughs> and eventually walked, uh, you know, about a mile or so in the opposite direction. Um, so this Liberty Square uh, was uh, very close to what would have been the waterfront in that period, right? Mm, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it was also the site of a an action against the Stamp Act in 1765. Um, so it's a site that has great resonance for the official narratives of the American Revolution. The revolt against the Stamp Act, you know, was part of sort of the growing awareness of uh, the English in America that they were more American than they were English, and um, and so so the site has great resonance for that meaning or or great valence for that that kind of question, but in in the early 1790s there there was still a lot of debate as to what the nature of the American Republic would be. You know, it it was just four years since the coup d'etat that created the present U.S. Constitution as something that supplanted the Articles of Confederation. And so there's still a lot of questions about the legitimacy of this form of government and this constitution. And high on the minds of people and and was was a sense that uh, this was still a revolutionary era and that there was extreme social inequality in not only the city of Boston, but pretty much everywhere else. The afterglow of the revolution certainly had worn off. You know, it had been quite a few years since 1776. And um, and so in response to the sense of inequality, many people throughout the uh, United States, the um, 13 colonies, looked abroad at the French Revolution as an example of dealing not only with the question of political liberty, but more substantive questions of socio-economic freedom and equality. And so the French Revolution uh, caused great consternation in the ranks of the American ruling elite. People like Thomas Jefferson and all celebrated it um, and were actually, you know, witnesses to much of it. Uh, whereas people like uh, uh, Boston's uh, John Adams and, and Washington and all looked upon it with a suspicion. And so um, uh, the, the events that are celebrated at Liberty Square, January 24th, 1793, was a celebration of the victory at the Battle of Valmay in late uh, December uh, of the French revolutionaries against the Prussian troops. And so it was a huge celebration. Everyone celebrated it, except that uh, people sang French revolutionary songs. They engaged in uh, parades and feasts, and they left the official celebrations and 
and celebrated more broadly, including at uh, this, uh, the site of the old Liberty Tree in Chinatown, uh, stopping there and having uh, uh, another feast and um, meeting and, and sort of constituting a more multiracial crowd than the, than the white crowd gathered at Liberty Square. So Liberty Square, you know, has this very subversive meaning to it. And in some ways, uh, the, the present celebration of Liberty Square gives you no sense that this was a site of, of class conflict in that period. And it wasn't merely the fact that Boston in that period had the largest pro-French revolution demonstrations anywhere outside of France, right? But that, um, in fact, uh, this was a critique of what was happening in the United States at the same time. Now, staying within that urban core, sort of the first section of the book, there's another forgotten chapter just down the road, a piece in the North End, and you frame it around what was once an armory on Cooper Street. And it culminates in a riot, and it culminates with the militia firing a cannon at a crowd of civilians. But the morning starts, it seems very simply, trying to serve draft notices in the tenements in, in the North End. How did we get from a normal calm morning to essentially state violence against a crowd of civilians that afternoon? Yeah, it's a great question. So you're referring to this massacre that took place in July 1863 mm -hmm. on Cooper Street at the corner with North Margin. And if you go there today, you're going to find a parking lot. Um, no sign, uh, no marker indicating what transpired there in 1863. A lot of people are familiar with the New York draft riots, but they, they're not familiar with the Boston draft riot. The New York draft riot took place um, just a few days before the Boston draft riot. So what took place in New York was in the air. And at the time, the North End had a huge Irish-descended population. We tend to think of the North End in terms of Italians, but the North, many types of, you know, many p types of people have lived in the North End over time. And in the mid 1800s, it had a very significant, um, Irish population, right? There were about 50,000 Irish immigrants living in Boston at that time. And this is out of a total population of a little over 180,000. And the North End was one of the two largest enclaves. As a, you know, largely impoverished population, as a working class population, not surprisingly, the Irish became, you know, sort of the demographic resource, if you will, for the Union Army. Mm -hmm. And so they um, sort of, they made up a disproportionate number of the troops that came out of Massachusetts. And as a result, um, they also experienced a disproportionate amount of the, the casualties. At the same time, there were heavy economic consequences uh, in terms of the, um, you know, this over-reliance, if you will, on Irish soldiers. A lot of the, the breadwinners, if you will, of uh, families in the North End were lost to the war effort. And so people who were engaged in recruiting and serving draft notices were often not very popular. And so that morning, a couple of officials came and they tried to serve notices on Prince Street. And they were rebuffed by a woman who, and the story goes, tried to assault one of the officials. And she, the officials, the officials try to arrest her, right? And that led to this confrontation outside the Cooper Street Armory. And you know, the estimate is somewhere between 500 to 1,000 individuals, many of them women and children, um, you know, tore up bricks from the street and they were hurling them at the building and smashing windows and, you know, uh, splintering pieces off the, the huge double doors. 
And at that point, and some of the some of the rioters had had firearms and other weapons, homemade weapons. At that point, the commanding officer of the militia members inside um, wheeled one of the armory's cannons, filled it with buckshot, and wheeled it to the entrance and fired through the doors and killed. No one really knows for sure. Some some the estimates run typically from eight to fourteen people. You know, Irish. Even though Irish Bostonians played a big role in the in the Union War effort, people of Irish descent were ambivalent at best about uh, the Civil War. They they supported it largely in the name of the preservation of the Union, not in the name of uh, emancipation of enslaved people. Right? So a lot of people were actually opposed to Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. And if you go back and read like the Irish newspapers of the time or Catholic newspapers. Say the Boston Pilot, the Pilot, which is still the the Archdiocese of Boston's weekly newspaper. Yep. Uh, they used openly racist language, trying to convince white people uh, against the idea of equality of the African descended population. But what this episode illuminates is the the class tensions, if you will, uh, in addition to racial tensions that were uh, at the heart of sort of the the making of the war, if you will, right? The making of the war in the sense of raising an army. I guess the the flip side of the anti-draft riots was the fact that there were African-Americans who were dying to participate in the war and fight for the Union and fight, more importantly, for emancipation. And uh, one of the sites we have in the book is Camp Meigs, which is in Hyde Park, and was the site of um, the, the training ground for the Massachusetts 54th. You know, I think there's an interesting story about uh, how African Americans came to be at least 10% of the Union Army, uh, whereas at the start of the war, they weren't allowed to fight at all. And And in that uh, conversation, there's a lot of uh, you know, you see history being put to practical political use in order to argue for African American participation in the war as soldiers rather than merely as teamsters carrying uh, weaponry and and supplies and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, what was that conversation? How did history play into the debate around starting the first volunteer regiments of African Americans? Certainly, African Americans were excluded from the beginning. And uh, one of the arguments made is that African American soldiers were good enough for General Washington, but not for General McClellan, who was for the beginning of the Civil War, the commander of the, uh, of all the armed forces of, on the Union side. That's one way in which, uh, you know, past African involvement in the liberation of this country from the British, if you, if one works with that narrative, was marshaled to argue for participation as soldiers in, in the, in the Union forces. But for Lincoln, it was a very complex question. He, um, he was constantly triangulating, trying to maintain the border states support in the war. And he felt that if he inducted African Americans into the, into the, uh, Union armed forces as full soldiers, he would lose the border states like, um, parts of North Carolina, um, Kentucky, and, um, and even Tennessee, which went over to the 
confederate, the last state to join the confederates. And so he delayed and procrastinated on this involvement, even though he met twice with people like Frederick Douglass uh, to, to discuss this. However, by the second meeting, he's ready to involve African Americans, particularly in light of the fact that war casualties were so heavy and that there was growing draft resistance throughout the country. And so following on that meeting, Douglas gave his commitment to recruit people, including his own son, into the 54th, uh, into the Massachusetts 54th, which trained at Camp Meigs. And when they uh, left Reedville Station for downtown Boston and the State House, a thousand of them to parade past the State House, they also went by the site of the Boston Massacre of uh, 1770 um, uh, and to, to sort of uh, call attention to Crispus attacks as a both Native American and uh, African American was the first life uh, sort of lost in the American Revolution. But that whole rescuing of Crispus attacks as a historical figure came about in that period because an African American historian, William Nell, recovered that history and emphasized it. And so th- that's where we see sort of history being deployed to tell stories for you know, very instrumental political purposes, and in this case, to defeat the Confederate South, something that seems, um, you know, is being played out again. <laughs> well, as long as we're moving out of the immediate, quote, historic core of Boston into some of the neighborhoods, one neighborhood that, that makes a pretty strong showing in the book is Roxbury and the sort of lower Roxbury in the South End. And one of the fascinating sites that you talk about in the book is Denison House. Now, we've mentioned Denison House a little bit on the show before, just in the context of Amelia Earhart's work there. Can you introduce us to what a settlement house would have been in the early 20th century? What made them important? And then among settlement houses, what made Denison House special? So when people hear about settlement houses, often, you know, to the extent they're familiar with them, probably what comes to mind is Jane Addams's um, Hull House in Chicago. Mm-hmm. But there are a number of them in and around Boston. And Denison House is probably the most well-known of those. It was founded in 1892 in today what's you know called Chinatown or the South Cove on Tyler Street. And they were typically establishments that had been set up by middle class or, um, you know, individuals, you know, professional individuals, middle class institutions in working class or heavily immigrant neighborhoods. And the goal was to, you know, settle, if you will, right? Um, well-educated upper middle class people among the working poor so that they could be studied, right? The working poor could be studied and also to help quote unquote uplift them through the examples of, you know, the upper class, <laughs> upper middle class people who were setting this <laughs> up. Right? Um, in the case of the Denison house, the three founders were all college professors, right? One was at Wellesley. Uh, they were all from Wellesley college, right? An English professor and labor activist by the name of Vita Scudder and economics professors, uh, Catherine Coleman and Emily Green Balch, who was a very well-known peace activist. 
in part, what makes Denison House interesting, it was, it was much more radical and sort of it pushed the envelope a lot more than most settlement houses. And that reflected the politics of, of the founders. And so while um, at Denison House, uh, people, particularly women, uh, could, could take courses on literature and carpentry and nursing, and they had summer camps for children, they had a library, a clinic, it was also a meeting place for those who were interested in the causes of socialism and pacifism and the labor movement more, more broadly. And this greatly upset um, many of the donors who tended to be males. You mentioned, you know, in terms of some of the famous um, residents and workers there, Amelia Earhart, but another one was Mary Kennedy O'Sullivan. And she was a labor organizer and one of the founders of the Women's Trade Union League. Now, Denison House, it, it grew, it, it eventually encompassed uh, uh, several houses in a row on Tyler Street in, in Chinatown. But as it became more institutionalized, its core is sort of a women's run organization, uh, decreased. And so as it, it, and that changed its politics. So, uh, around World War II in 1942, it, clo- it, it shut down in Chinatown and it moved to Dorchester. It merged with other settlement houses there. And they now exist as part of what's known as the Federated Dorchester Neighborhood Houses. Yeah, Denison House as a a woman-led and founded organization at the time it was founded is very interesting to me. Earlier, Serene used the word intersectionality. And this is something that was, I think, really interesting that we discovered uh, for ourselves as we were as we were doing research on this book is that all sorts of people were working on all sorts of causes, you know, a- across the centuries. And mm-hmm. so that women were involved in the founding of Denison House actually, in, in some ways, is not surprising at all, right? Women played leading roles in all sorts of movements in the, in the 19th and, and, and 18th and 17th centuries. Uh, and we saw that not only in, in Boston proper, but we saw it in places like Lynn, you know, with the, the Lynn Female Anti-Slavery Society. Uh, was really pushing the envelope, not only against slavery, but against all racial barriers. And Lowell, in terms of the labor movement in, in the 19th century, I mean, there are many examples. And so what took place in Denison House, in some ways, emerges out of this larger ecology, if you will, of people working on all sorts of different issues and at many intersections. So right down the street, not so much from Denison House, neither of its incarnations, but from South End House and some of its contemporaries in the early 20th century settlement house movement is Haley House. Can you tell us a little bit about what the founding and uh, mission of Haley House is compared to some of the the earlier settlement houses? Am I taking that soon or are you? Why don't you do it, Joe? Yeah, we we divided things up, Jake. And I think... I got this one and I forgot that I got it. <laughs> so anyway. Well, actually, before we talk about Haley House, that actually brings us to an interesting question that maybe I should have asked earlier. How did you end up working on this project as three co-authors? And, and were there any challenges uh, with too many cooks in the kitchen or was it different than other projects you've worked on by having a group authorship? Well, we fought a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that that's the next book, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this book grows out of a series, right? And uh, until the publication of the Boston book, it was a series of one. 
And, that, and that, the first book was A People's Guide to Los Angeles. And the, and, the, oh. and the book did very well. And as a result of that, the University of California Press commissioned a series. And so there are, there are a whole, there are a number of these People's Guide books that are unfolding, right? Uh, there's one coming out very soon after Oz on uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. The next one will be New York City. Uh, there's one on Nashville. There's one on Orange County, California. So there's, there's a number of them. But when um, Laura Polito, the lead author of the, of the Los Angeles book, asked me if I knew anyone that could do the Boston book because they wanted to have some, something on Boston. And being very immodest, I immediately thought of myself, but <laughs> I, I knew I couldn't do it by myself. And I immediately thought of Sarin as a potential co-author. And so I called Sarin, and Sarin immediately expressed interest. And at that time, Eleni McCrackus was a senior at Vassar College, and she was taking a class with me. Eleni is born and raised in summer, excuse me, in Cambridge. And we connected, given her interest on things greater Boston. And it was very clear that she was someone who not only was really interested in the city, but engaged it in a very active way. And so we asked her to serve as our research assistant. And she did a fantastic job as a research assistant. She did a lot more than simply do what we asked her to do. I mean, she, she made the project her own and in doing so helped to, you know, create things that we wouldn't have imagined or been able to do about you know, on our own. So we asked her to then become an author. In terms of how and why we divided things up in, in ways we did, I mean, as you might have gotten from, you know, Sarin's discussion of Camp Mike's or on Liberty Square and things like that, Sarin has a fascination and a deep knowledge on things related to the Revolutionary War and particularly the Civil War and abolitionism, right? And so he tended in that direction in ways that um, you know, I didn't, for example. And there, are, you know, I have particular interests and bodies of knowledge and, and things I'm familiar with that, you know, lent themselves more to, to my focusing on them than, say, Eleni and vice versa. And so, in, in some ways, the division of labor emerged organically. And at the same time, sometimes it, it simply became a function of what one was able to do at a particular time. And so, you know, as we were learning more, as we were trying to imagine the book as a whole, you know, we identified holes or things that we, you know, thought were important, but we weren't covering. And we'd, you know, say like, who can do this? And, you know, sometimes it was based on who was available. It's sort of a, a related question that is similar to how the book came about and, and the question about division of labor is we, we ended up writing about uh, over 200 different sites and, and then we had to we had to narrow those down to a, a manageable amount uh, certainly one that would keep us within the 100,000 word limit that the, uh, that the press had established <laughs> and um, that was a task that I dreaded uh, and yet when we got together um, Joe proposed a very simple methodology right List the, all the ones you think definitely have to be in, and then list the ones that you think maybe, and uh, and and then we'll compare the lists. And so immediately, once we identified the overlaps, the uh, you know those would definitely be in. And then we looked at the maybes, and there was a fair amount of convergence, even if it meant at times uh, each of us having to to give up some sites that we really fell in love with. And so. Um, so, so it was a very sort of 
a truly collegial, collaborative process. And, uh, and I think that the fact that we were constantly learning about new things and developed uh, questions along the way sort of left us with a very pragmatic attitude toward the history. One, we would never be comprehensive. We would never get the, to say the final word about any particular site. So, so let's work with this and issue it into the world as a uh, part of a continuing stream of conversations. So sorry about the diversion there. That's something I had meant to ask at the, at the top of the show. Um, I was just starting to ask about how Haley House being founded sort of in mid 20th century era would have been different from settlement houses of the earlier century. So the, the Haley House grew out of, well, I mean, first of all, the Haley House is, it's like an intentional living community of individuals dedicated to social justice. So in that sense, it resonates, if you will, with the spirit of, of Denison House. It's sort of a, it has different roots. It emerges out of the Catholic Worker movement, right, which is a, uh, it still exists today, uh, founded by Dorothy Day and Peter Marin, a group of radical Catholics dedicated to, um, peace and anti-militarism and, um, you know, social, you know, social justice and, and simple living. And the Catholic worker movement is a collection of autonomous communities that actively oppose war and poverty. And so different Catholic worker communities in, 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 in different cities do different things. And in, in Boston, what they do through the Haley House is they operate a daily soup kitchen that provides breakfast for men. And in the afternoon, they provide elder meals, uh, regardless of gender. And then they also have a food pantry for neighborhood families and elders. And since its um, original establishment in the mid-1960s, Haley House has, has expanded what it does. It it owns and manages over 100 affordable housing units, and it also um, it has a it has a community garden in in Roxbury, and it also has a bakery cafe uh, in Dudley Square or Nubian Square that runs a catering business, and it's a it's a profit sharing establishment that uh, not only works to pay a living wage, but it also provides training jobs to individuals who for a whole variety of reasons face um, major obstacles to you know finding employment you know Haley House you know in the South End and Haley House in Dudley or Nubian Square serve as important centers of uh, sort of left and progressive and peace activism uh, in the city of Boston and they've done that for you know the uh, Haley House has done that for the last 50 years or so uh, staying in the South End for a moment. I want to talk about a riot. And I know our listeners are probably sick of hearing me say that because whenever I am stuck for a topic to talk about on the podcast, I just flip through Boston history and there's always a good riot to talk about. But I've never talked specifically about the so-called Puerto Rican riots that swept through several New England cities in the 1970s. And it's embodied here in Boston in the 1972 Puerto Rican festival in Blackstone Square. What led up to a moment of unrest that gets remembered, whether rightly or not, as the Puerto Rican riots of 1972? 
As with most uh, uh, sort of urban uprisings and civil conflict, the the exact origins are murky. It includes the fact that some sort of scuffle broke out, and someone used a starter pistol, you know, the kind of thing used in athletics, to sort of interrupt the process. And that sort of brought the police in, leading to three days of skirmishes and 36 arrests, uh, a large number of injuries. And so there was this riot, uh, as was characterized at the time, in, in Blackstone Square. One of the things that was interesting to us was to try to look at an event like that and go beyond the immediate item that becomes newsworthy and try to understand the community in which this event occurred. And it it did, in fact, you know, as most uh, civil conflict today does, uh, uh, you know, result in increased attention to the community. The fact that there was 32% unemployment in in the area at that time among Puerto Rican community. There was also a time when there were other kinds of organizing happening, you know, in the same community. In fact, some of the meetings that happened during the so-called riot were in uh, Via Victoria. And so there was the, the that kind of organizing happening to create Via Victoria in that period. But in addition to that, th- there was also a, a stronger current than, say, a 501c nonprofit type project there, right? And that was the fact that the Puerto Rican Socialist Party was very influenced and grew out of the Puerto Rican independence movement and had, uh, and something that had strong ties back to Puerto Rico itself was, was active in the area and they had established a nucleo within that community and took on the issue of police violence against the community as one of the grievances that they wanted to organize to address. And so these other kinds of developments beyond the right are also interesting to us. The development of an independent ideology from the dominant ideology of assimilation and incorporation, instead an ideology of independence and social equality. And uh, and I think that's something that persists through to the present. So, you know, with every... Uh, catastrophe that has struck Puerto Rico in recent years, including most importantly fiscal austerity, you know, as deadly as any hurricane or earthquake, you find that the entire Puerto Rican diaspora sort of uh, not only receives new people, but that kind of radicalism from the island spreads out across the east coast of the United States. So so for us, the interesting thing about Blackstone Square in this period was an independent political formation. Also community building embodied in Via Victoria, which you, you name check, but for the listeners, will you explain a little bit about what Via Victoria is? Via Victoria emerges in the uh, late 1960s out of a project of urban planning aid, uh, which is a group of urban planners uh, and community residents who were addressing, you know, these very problems that we address, that we mentioned earlier, things like unemployment, but specifically the landlord-tenant relationship and the fact that many of the homes in the area were quite dilapidated and there was a high density of residents in the homes and consequent other social ills in the space as well. And so uh, Via Victoria is a project to 
provide that community with not only ownership over these dilapidated buildings and all, but to rehabilitate the buildings and create community institutions that reflect the needs of the community. In fact, the physical design of Via Victoria is inspired by a sort of a rural Puerto Rican village and the architects involved in it and selected, um, to help develop it, uh, visited Puerto Rico in order to understand uh, the the sort of the, the physical dimensions of the community building project. It resulted in a project that persists through to the present with a whole range of uh, organizations and activities, a community center, an art center. For a while, there was a radio station and a uh, I don't think we have these anymore, info shops and that kind of thing. And so this was, you know, a very comprehensive uh, community development, unlike Denison House and and others. You know, th- this was very much a community-driven process. And so there was, you know, there wasn't any external tutelage of the community. At least that hasn't really surfaced as a complaint in, in what I've read. You know, one of the things that's interesting about the, the South End is, um, you know, during the 60s and 70s and 80s was what a hotbed of organizing it was on many different fronts. Of course, the South End today is one of the most heavily gentrified neighborhoods in the city of Boston. And it's, for most people, it's, it's very unaffordable. Still, what's striking about the South End is it, there, there, there remains a significant uh, working class, low income population, a, a significant population mm-hmm. of, of color. Large tracts of subsidized housing and public housing. Yeah, and in alternative forms of housing like 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 Via Victoria, and these social struggles that you know in some ways seem very remote help explain why we still see a significant um, amount of diversity, class wise, ethno racially, in the South End today, despite um, the power of, of of gentrification and, and the affluent classes that are moving in there. In a way, it's it's a little petri dish for the entire city as we struggle with housing affordability, and that same transformation t- seems evident to me is happening at, at different rates all over the city. East Boston, which has long been a working class immigrant neighborhood, going back um, even when we talked about the Civil War period and the North End at that time being very Irish. Um, you know, the East Boston's gone through all the same transformations. It was Yankee and then it was Irish and then it was Italian. Over the past couple of decades, it's been mostly Central American immigrants and their descendants. And now it's very rapidly gentrifying because people have discovered it's waterfront property. <laughs> right. I guess I could follow up with a, a question for you about East Boston. A site uh, makes an appearance in the book that has, at least the modern incarnation of this site, has the amazing name. Navy Fuel Pier Airport Edge Buffer. But before it had that name, it was the East Boston Immigration Station. Can you tell me what the role of the East Boston Immigration Station was in its in its heyday and then why it makes an appearance in, in your book that's really about uh, radical history? Maybe we'll start off with its current name or you know, <laughs> the Navy Fuel Pier Airport Edge Buffer. It's hard to imagine an uglier name for a, a park. But that speaks to, I mean, that says a lot about East Boston. About two thirds of East Boston is literally dedicated to Logan Airport. And so it's, it's very difficult to understand East Boston without understanding the, the, 
the very dominant role, not only the airport, but especially the airport, but transportation infrastructure have been in, in, in transforming that community. The East Boston Immigration Station um, opened in 1920. It closed in 1954. People referred to it as Boston's Ellis Island. And during that period, 1920 to 1954, uh, the East Boston Immigration Station processed about 10% of the immigrant arrivals that came through the, the port of Boston, which would include the airport, uh, about 20, 23,000 immigrants. And uh, eventually Massport, which owns Logan Airport, acquired the site and they tore it down in 2011 after deeming it uh, unsalvageable despite community protest. But the East Boston Immigration Station was important not only because of the numbers of people it processed, but it, it, it sheds light on sort of the purpose of immigration control in some ways and, you know, social control more broadly. So in May uh, 1932, uh, 11, they called themselves hunger, hunger marchers gathered outside the immigration station. They were part of a much larger group that had descended on Boston to go to the state house from various locations around the state to call for unemployment relief. This is in the context, of course, of the depression. And they, this breakoff group specifically went to East Boston because they wanted to protest the detention and the threatened deportation of Edith Berkman. Her, her nickname was the Red Flame. Um, she was an organizer with the National Textile Workers Union, and they were actively engaged in a strike in Lawrence against the owners of the mills, the wool mills. Berkman was a, a Polish immigrant, and she was arrested for her alleged association with uh, communists and by um, authorities in Lawrence. Again, she had been one of the key uh, organizers of a strike in, in 1931. And this speaks to how the immigration sta station, among its functions, was you know processing people, but also it was you know a place of social control, uh, particularly geared towards uh, non-citizens who were defined or perceived as threats to the established order. And perhaps the most famous person ever to be detained there was um, people are familiar with the Ponzi scheme, right? Well, mm -hmm. Carlo or Charles Ponzi, the swindler, spent time at the East Boston Immigration Station. During World War II, it served as a, um, a prison for Germans and Italian soldiers captured at sea and for uh, also German, Italian, and Japanese so-called enemy aliens. So these are non-citizen residents of German and Italian and Japanese descent who are living in the United States. But, you know, during the war, you know, were seen as potentially suspect and those were detained there. Apparently, um, Columbia Point in Dorchester was also a site for, I mean, certainly, um, Italian POWs were held there and reportedly some, you know, people of Italian descent who were civilians as well. I will say as a piece of trivia and a, a teaser for the listeners for a future episode, Columbia Point during World War II was the site of, as far as I can tell, Boston's only soccer riot among the Italian prisoners who are being held there. <laughs> I look forward to that episode. I'm going to start moving toward a wrap up. But before I do, I'll bring in one of the sites that has a lot of memory attached to it for me. It goes back to my early history here in Boston. And it's in Kenmore Square. Kenmore used to be basically anchored by an all-night diner called Deli House and a punk club called The Rathskeller. So can you tell us just a little bit about the rat and its heyday and how Kenmore Square's changed since then? 
Well, given what you've said, in some ways, I want to talk about Deli House because I <laughs> ate many meals there. Uh, oh, yeah. And I, I, I can talk about De- Deli House all night if you want. <laughs> I like to get their potato pancakes with the applesauce. I like to sit as close as I could to the Velvet Elvis. And, you know, and in some ways, the presence of you know places like Deli House and the Rat and the Army Navy store, that speaks to what Kenmore Square was during the 60s and the 70s and 80s. And it was sort of a... You know, it was, a, it was somewhat of a, a gritty or grungy area, um, very interesting, an alternative space where all sorts of people would gather and connect. And, you know, at the heart of it was was the rat. So the, you know, in the 60s, you know, what was the formal name of it was the Rath Skeller. It was a you know, rundown bar and restaurant uh, right on Com Ave. Later, you know, the history is a little fuzzy, but someone bought it and then it became known as TJ's. Then it got sold again, and in 1974, the new owner brought back the old name, the Rathskeller. And from then until 1997, the Rat, which was the you know the name most of us knew it by, you know, in addition to being a restaurant, it was really known as uh, the center of Boston's punk and alternative rock scene. And bands like the Ramones and the Talking Heads and the Dead Kennedys, Metallica, the Police, the Beastie Boys. REM, they all played there. And then there were very popular Boston-based bands, the Pixies, the Cars, uh, the Dropkick Murphys, uh, played there. And, you know, when it closed down in 1997, it, it, it was sad in the sense that it, it, was, it was the most painful manifestation, if you will, of, you know, not only the change in the, in the music scene, but more broadly, the, the changes that took the transformation in Kenmore Square. And that's very much related to, you know, processes of, of gentrification and real estate speculation. And uh, of course, this is an important element of the story. And part of the a really important element of the story of the transformation of Boston and Cambridge is the rise of what we might consider the university industrial complex, right? And mm. in the case of Kemo Square, mm-hmm. particularly Boston University. And so today, if you go by where the rat was, well, that building's gone and now it's a a luxury hotel. And in some ways that says it all. But there's a lot of great memories associated with the with the rat. Yeah, I, I moved to Boston originally in nineteen ninety seven and I got to go to all of one show at the rat, uh one of the last ones before it closed. That was the first place where, where Bostonians actually talked to me. I think the first Bostonian who uh would deign to have a conversation with me was uh, uh Mr. Butch, which uh Listeners of a certain age will know Mr. Butch as sort of a prophet of the punk scene, a, a homeless Rasta guy. And uh, everybody else at the Rat was too cool for me. But Mr. Butch had a nice little chat. So the book is A People's Guide to Greater Boston. It's available for pre-order and digital download now. It'll be out in physical copies later this week. We'll make sure to link to uh, all the information you, you need to get a virtual or physical copy in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 192. Now, besides the book, if folks want to know more about you or your work or, or keep up with you, uh, is there any place online they should be looking for that? There are two places uh, right now. One would be a website that we're about to launch called bostonbook.com. 
org. Despite the name, it's a rather <laughs> unpretentious website. Uh, but we also have a Facebook page called um, Greater Boston Book. Uh, that's a place where we share news, comment on current events, as well as highlight some of the sites we uh, address in the book and wish we had addressed. <laughs> and I, and I, I should say that the bostonbook.org one of the things that we'll do on that site is um, post a lot of the sites that we wrote about but did not include in the book, sites that we will write about in the future. Right? This is an ongoing project for us. You know, we, as we said, this is we don't see this as the final word. Uh, it's part of a larger conversation, but it's not our final word either. We want to continue thinking about this and writing and, and researching on this topic, and that will be one place where it unfolds. All right. We'll also include a link to the website and the Facebook profile in this week's show notes. Joe and Surin, I just want to say thanks very much to both of you for, for joining me today and for spending the time to talk Boston history. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, Jake. It's been a really great pleasure, and we really appreciate your, your interest and engagement. To learn more about a people's history of Greater Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 192. We'll have a link to buy the book, of course. And I'll also be sure to have links to bostonbook.org, as well as the Facebook page of the book. And of course, we'll have more information about the Athenaeum's Hamilton Remix virtual talk, this week's upcoming historical event. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. Listeners.